0: It's so important that we understand this as founders because I'm gonna push on this time and again, time and again. You do not teach music lessons. You never have, you never will. You transform lives, period. And you use your music lessons as a vehicle for that. Your retention will go through the roof if the parents of your kids know that you're invested in their growth as a human. Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn Music Factory.
1: And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio. And we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school.
0: So get ready to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure music school.
1: So Nate, for a while now, we have been sending out these podcast episodes. And one of the things that we ask is send in your questions. And I have been collecting and you have been collecting a lot of questions around the topic that we're going to cover today, which is retention. And we finally built up so many that (laughs) I think it was just it was just time for us to do this one. So I am really interested today in jumping in and looking at student retention, uh, strategies for keeping it, which is a topic that a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink on and uh, examining I think some deeper things that I believe about this topic that came out for me in a recent conversation with a client of mine so I'm ready to just jump into it and I have a question I'd like to lead off Mm. for you fire how much time does Brooklyn Music Factory spend on talking about this topic Wow. You mean annually, weekly, monthly? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave it open because I know that you all have this rhythm of you know uh, team meetings and, and things of that nature. And so I'm sure it comes up at all those levels. And hey, I mean, maybe a good way to start this out is to look at it from those three levels. I don't know, but I kind of did leave it a little bit open-ended there so that uh, to give you room to kind of, yeah, to give you room to answer in the way that kind of first came
0: to mind. Yeah, totally. So I always I'm a 30,000 foot guy as you know. Oh, I yeah. always like to I always like to think wh- you know, where are we going to be a year from now? Where are we going to be 3 years from now? So as a result, whenever I think about retention, Daniel, I start with a 12-month arc. And so mm. we have sort of seasons. I think of like where is my as a school owner, where is my attention being paid seasonally? So we're entering into our re-enrollment season. It's the spring. And we are thinking about the fall right now. So for example, um, we will spend a large amount of time in the months of April, May, and June focused on retention. In fact, other than ensuring that our summer camp is a thriving program and ensuring that it's sold out and all of the families that are signed up are well-served in anticipation of the summer, other than that, the number one topic of conversation is retention in Q2 of every year. So how much time exactly, Daniel? I can't tell you, but I I think in terms of percentages, uh, sorry, percentage of attention that we as an organization pay to any one topic, and it gets a large percentage in Q2. And not so much in other quarters. It does. uh, We look at, in our Slack channel, we have a cancellation channel and we monitor that cancellation channel daily. So we know exactly when someone cancels. Um, that's just a little automated system we have where we get a mm. snap and Slack when, when, you know, Jessica cancels a student. Um, you know, someone gets canceled. We also monitor every month the retention of every one of our teachers. So we know what percentage of their students they're retaining. The last mon- uh, number uh, metric that we monitor, I know we're going to talk in, in much more deeply about why we measure certain things. But the last thing that I measure from a founder standpoint is what has our historical average of retention been over the course of a school year? And um, sorry, I I actually do it in the flip. I say what percentage of our total student body is canceled in the last 30 days? That's how I measure retention. So I look at the flip. Um, Sounds a little negative, but honestly, it's an easier number for me because it's a a Mm. small one. Um, So I look at that and I say historically, Brooklyn Music Factory has always um, lost about X percentage of our total student body over a given 30 days. And I want to make sure that we're always very close to that or beating it. So that's the, that's the attention I pay to it on a, uh, a month to month basis.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: So this is a topic that
1: as I, looked beyond the borders of my own business and the businesses that I was involved in really when I started doing the coaching and consulting thing five plus years ago, this was a topic that came to mind in a way that it never had before. I'm going to tell you why. I think this is a a good way to kind of begin this, that I started as I was doing research on, Hey, what's out there in terms of resources for school owners around business. And, you know, to be honest, Five years ago, it was a very different landscape than it is now. It seems like every other week, I'm finding another Facebook group of a would-be coach or would-be marketing consultant to music schools. When I did my initial research, and even true up until this day, I saw for a lot of these coaches and consultants that they... I'm going to say paid lip service. That kind of sounds negative. I'm not saying they just paid lip service to it, but I noticed that it was a big talking point. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Retention. Here's how you increase your student retention. There is not a single thing, uh, not a single business or would-be helper that wasn't mentioning that. And what was interesting to me was that they wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't a topic, if it wasn't top of mind. Mm. Good, good marketing means hey, talk to people about what they're thinking about. And so, you know, I look at this person. Oh, they're talking about retention. Look at this person. Oh, they have their fifty-two tips for how to increase your student retention. I, I just kept finding things like this all around, and that was surprising to me. And I'm going to tell you why. Because for my own studio, it was a never never a topic that came up. Now, mm-hmm. admittedly, my studio was different than you know a bigger school, but at the same time, we were running a summer camp, mm-hmm. and then I was doing marketing and uh, business strategy with my best friend who does own uh, a a school that has hundreds of students in it. So I've, I've kind of got the viewpoint from several different, uh, for several different business types because of what I was involved in, what I was a partner in, what I was a co-owner in and and those sorts of things. And it never came up, not my own studio, not in the summer camp and not in my, you know, very close friend studio that I was, um, advising and, and kind of had a, a free hand in how they were doing marketing and, and things of that nature. And, and so here's what I'm getting at. Because it wasn't an issue in any one of these businesses, I didn't have this mentality of, oh, how do I increase retention? How do I increase retention? How do we rec- increase retention? Um, and so my thinking on this developed a lot differently. And I took a, a decidedly, I take a decidedly different stance on this um, than the, Hey, what are the tactics? What are the tips to increase retention? Um, there is a much more holistic viewpoint that I want to give on this. And I think it's going to come out as you and I talk, because I think you're talking about the 30,000 foot view and, and you're measuring the metrics on that sort of thing. And I am a metrics guy. It's true but this is one area where I really didn't do the metrics around it. And as I was prepping for this episode, as I've been thinking about this for several months, because I knew this topic was coming up. I was like, why, why did that never come up for me? Why did I not measure this in the way that I measured my funnels? Why did I not measure this in the way that I measured other things? And so there's some, there's some contrarian advice. Uh, there's a contrarian viewpoint that I have on this topic that I think is very different than some of the other then I think the the predominant way of talking about retention. And and frankly, this is the first time I've kind of talked about it. And I feel myself, even as I'm communicating this, realizing like, wow, this is the first time it's coming out and this isn't as polished. I'm hearing myself sound not as polished as I I typically am on marketing topics or business strategy topics or systems or organization and, and that sort of thing. And so Uh, there's a little bit of trepidation I have coming into this episode because I realize I haven't talked about all that much, but there is a little bit of excitement too, because this, since this isn't something I've talked about before, this is kind of the first time I'm ever going to publicly really go in depth on, on, on this. So that's kind of the, the start. That's what I will put there into this, um, into the conversational hopper that we've got to deal with as, as we, uh, Mm. as, as we kind of go through this. So, um, I like your viewpoint that you were kind of saying. I think I have a different viewpoint, not a contrarian viewpoint, not not a, oppositional to your viewpoint, but I think we're going to come at this from different ways. So I'm just going to put that out there. I'm curious where you think we should go next.
0: I think we should read a listener mm, comment yes. question right out of the gate because I'm super excited, dude, to hear your um, kind of alternate view on retention. I find it fascinating that with your different friends and school, you know, your own school. Um, Actually, don't find it surprising with your own school that retention wasn't an issue, but I find it fascinating with some of your friends who you're working with that Mm. that was never a topic. But let me just read this because I love this. Um, This came from a school owner who wrote in and just said, retention, period. (laughs) That's the (laughs) only thing that matters at this point, period. We do a pretty dang good job at getting people through the door. We do an equally good job at seeing them through the exit in less than a year. And that, to me, is the pain point. So the first thing I want to just present in terms of strategy at Brooklyn Music Factory is usually the strategy is all about uh, you know serving the parents, serving the parents, getting them to know the parents, staying in constant contact with the parents because they hold the purse strings, right? They're the ones who are going to cancel or retain or, or not cancel their, their kids, right? Um, and of course, there's wisdom to that. Right, the the kid is either coming home really excited from their piano lesson and looking forward to the next one, or they're coming home sort of ah, eh, come see, come saw, or they're coming home with a negative experience. Right, so obviously mm. we want the f- first. We want all of our students to leave the lesson at Brooklyn Music Factory feeling like they they had more fun than they could have even imagined having, and so they're just anxious to come back to the next week because. You know, as we talk all about the time, it's like the, we have this image of a 7- to 10-year journey. This is our roadmap for any one of our students. And so the only chance of us really transforming their life and giving them this opportunity to see themselves as a lifelong music maker is if they're excited week after week, right? So there's a lot of wisdom in talking about the student and their experience. However, we actually take the strategy of starting with our teachers Basically, we are in constant conversation with our teachers around their relationships with their students and their communication with their parent, the student's parents. That's why in previous episodes, we've talked about how um, consistent communication um, is one of our core values, because essentially, for example, one of the real things we're doing in our all staff in a week from now is we are spending an hour and a half talking about writing Musician's Journey Reports. They're sort of like a report, annual report card. Hmm. And that Musician's Journey Report is all about the teacher investing their energy into every one of their students and imagining where their student can be in six months and 12 months and then sharing that vision with the parent. And guess what? That's step one in our re-enrollment campaign. Hmm. Right. So our strategy actually starts uh, with the teacher and ensuring that the teacher has all the tools that she needs in order to um, serve that student and communicate well with the parent. And then from there, we get down into the nitty gritty of student by student by student by student. Right. We actually don't spend a whole lot of time parent by parent by parent by parent. We go teacher to student. Right. And then we assume. (laughs) That if we do it well, the parent will be like, man, they're really invested in my child's journey. Obviously, I'm going to stay. So, that's our overview of our strategy. I can talk hmm. about specific steps, but I wanted to just sort of lay that out to begin, Daniel. Um, any thoughts that come up just when you hear that's That's the overall strategy we have.
1: That vision piece, it does sound a lot like you. Um, <laughs> yeah. and uh you know as i hear that i think the thing that comes to mind is that there the parent receives that report the report itself is not the thing that keeps them in mm-hmm. would you agree with that statement
0: um i would say it's not the email report that matters. It's the content within it. Yes. Yes. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, totally. Because here's... This is just what I can't escape.
1: And I, I thought this would come up deeper in the episode, but I it's all that's on my mind right now. Fire, what do you got? It's, it's that all the advice around this that I tend to find is tactical-based. Mm. So in other words, the person... Who's giving the retention advice? Go do this thing, retention gets better. I think the classic example that the first time I read it, I literally sat in my chair laughing was giving attendance bracelets. Yes. (sighs) Right. It's all like, yeah. So, in other words, what I want, what I really want to draw out is that it's not because BMF does these reports, it's the thing behind the report that's, that's driving the success. If someone decides, Oh, I'm going to do vision reports too. Okay. They try it. doesn't work. Oh, well, I'll have to go talk to Nate. It must be what they're putting in the report that does that. Or maybe I'm writing it wrong. Mm -hmm. There's this tactical, there's this tactical mindset. In fact, a lot of the questions that received, we received on this topic, I feel they betray a shallow view of what, of what drives retention as if if I do this thing, it equals the student stays longer. But what I don't want to be heard right now is that I don't I'm not saying here that, oh, your report based thing, it's not good. I think there's something that you're doing beneath the report that is in total agreement with kind of my thinking on this matter, too. And I'm trying to draw out from you, Nate, like what it what is it that you feel um, that is the deeper Principle that people can get behind the report because maybe they don't do a report. Maybe they do like um, you know a a one-on-one conversation with the parent because they have the time to do that. Or maybe it doesn't take the form of the vision report. Maybe it looks very different. But what's the deeper principle that you feel drives the success around this thing that you're doing that's working so well for you? That's what
0: I want to get at. Yeah. So the tactics um, are important because you need to do. X number of actions in any given year to have any chance of success. However, Mm -hmm. the underlying principle, the number one thing that correlates in our observation to retention is the relationship, right? Hmm. The relationship specifically between the teacher and the student. So I want to frame this correctly. And then I'm I'm actually, I've just pulled up a template for a musician's journey report because I want to share the categories Um, but you're talking foundationally, what do, does every school owner need to have in order to have a chance at improving their retention? Mm. So there's two parts in my mind and my observation is this, we've talked at length about this and we'll talk more and more about this, but every single person listening has a very unique why and purpose behind their program and the curriculum needs to support that. And we'll talk more about that. So for example, at Brooklyn Music Factory, we are a songwriting program that's an ear before I approach, and it's game-based in the classroom and it all and we celebrate our students through songwriting parties multiple times a year. That's it, right? There's like a two-sentence explanation. Then so you give that clear definition of your approach, your purpose, your why, and then you say we have curriculum to support it and then the teachers develop deep relationships with every one of their students so that they can guide them strategically through this curriculum now you everybody listening has teachers that are really good at developing relationships with their students and teachers that are a little bit that need a little bit more coaching on that right but there's no question In my mind, over the last dozen years that we've been doing it at the factory Mm. and over the 32 years that I've been teaching, that knowing every one of my students and knowing their needs week to week to move them successfully to the next songwriting party is paramount to retaining them year to year. And I will just, I'm going to state the obvious here, Daniel. What is my retention at Brooklyn Music Factory? Of course, it's 100% but i'm the founder like i literally am the person who is like along with my business partner said these are our core values this is the, you know a lot of the games we play i designed in this studio a dozen years ago you know so i'm not exactly the right person to be sure. representing the retention number however i'm absolutely the right person to coach my teachers and to co- and to work closely with my directors around how to develop strong relationships with our students and how to implement the curriculum correctly based on where a student is in their musician's journey. So anywho, that's- Well, let me, ask, question. You a que- uh, let me ask you a question on that. Let me ask you a question on that.
1: I've heard you talk about that concept before that mm-hmm. we, as owners, we can't compare our team members to us. hmm could you tell me why, in your experience, why do you feel that retention is lower if it is relationship based? Why is retention lower with a team teacher, with one of your teaching staff, than it would be with you? Like I realize that you embody the values, that sort of thing, but if but if in your estimation retention is based on that deeper principle or deeper foundational aspect of relationship, Those students have a relationship with their teacher. Um, What would would make the teacher then have a lower retention number than you, let's say?
0: Okay, so I'm just jotting down some ideas here, but there's a few different things that come to mind. Number one, we as founders always want to be very realistic. And so my student count is, I mean, I don't have it right in front of me, but let's say it's 10. Mm -hmm. It's a very Manageable number of students that I'm maintaining weekly relationships with. However, another student, another teacher, rather on our team who might be teaching five classes plus a, a private lesson studio may be managing 55 relationships. Hmm. Obviously, it's more difficult to manage 55 unique relationships versus 10. So to be fair, I don't expect that teacher to have hundred percent retention on 55 relationships. I can't remember what the data point is, but you know, like that idea of like how many you can actually have in your network, how many relationships you can actually maintain. It's like, it totally breaks down when you reach over a hundred. You know
1: what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, There's sociological data that um, when, when a network or an organization crosses the 150 person barrier Mm. that uh that it gets much more com- it gets much more it becomes very
0: hard for it to retain the unique properties that it had when when it's below. Yeah. So if if I imagine um so that's number one. I imagine a teacher, they have all their own personal relationships they're maintaining. Then on the job site at the factory, they're maintaining say 50 or 60 relationships. Um, that's that's quite a bit, that's a heavy load. Number one. Number two, um I've been doing it for thirty-two years. A lot of our teachers coming in have been doing it for three years. So I, you know, we're very aware that we break uh, of our age groups. You know, our age four, um, four to six. Uh, I'm sorry, four to four to eight. Uh, even four and fives are different than six to eight. And then we go nine to twelve, and then we do thirteen and up. Maintaining relationships with a four and five year old is radically different than maintaining a relationship right with a thirteen and up. Mm. So each one of those age ranges requires a level of training okay. in order to be able to learn how to develop those relationships and communicate with a five-year-old, et cetera, versus a 13-year-old. And then the last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, in all fairness, a lot of the students that I'm working with, you've talked about this in your own studio before, I remember. Um, and then you you were talking about a friend of yours who's who's doing this, but in my own studio, a lot of the students that I'm working with have been in the program already for say five six years. They're deeply invested. They're not going anywhere unless there's a life change, and even if there's a life change, I'm just taking them online if I'm not teaching them in person, right? If they move to Canada or whatever, I'll just continue with them. Um, so, you know, whereas if we enroll in, like for example, we'll enroll maybe 75 new private lesson students in the fall who are just beginning their journey at the factory. And let's say 15 of them go with a new, with a new teacher. Um, they're just beginning their journey. So there's a, there's, there's a normal amount um, of attrition that happens within a new class. You know. So that's sort of the last piece that comes. But I think there's absolutely a training by age Learning how to develop relationships and communicate with those age ranges. And I also think that there is um, the the you have to be cognizant of the number of students that any one of your teachers has and understand that developing relationships or maintaining not developing, developing and maintaining relationships with those that's tricky if it gets up, mm. it gets up to like 30, 40, 50 students. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I didn't
1: get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS. And We look forward to answering your questions. I've heard the adage that kids don't quit lessons their parents do. Hmm. I can't remember where I heard that. Um, I found that to be very... True. That if the parent had a stick to it attitude, I remember one of, uh, one of my more memorable relationships, in my own studio was with a family that I still have years later, a decade and a half later, still have a great relationship with. And um, the, de- the father in that family said to all the kids, you're taking piano for five years mm-hmm. or unless you die.
0: saying this to his eight
1: eight eight-year-old son you know um but what's interesting is that families when the five years was up two of the three kids quit and then the other one she finished high school so she played from i think the time she was six to 18 the other kids did their five years and i think actually the middle child um their second daughter i think she actually went beyond five years and then and then she stopped at a certain point um and I think that's just a testament to the fact that there was investment there, uh, but as she got into high school, she got busy, and, and that's really the, the maker-breaker or or time. Here's my point, is that once again, you know you were talking just a second ago, and, and I'm asking some challenging questions here. I appreciate you allowing me to grill you like this, but
0: keep them coming.
1: I find first off, I find that statement to be true. Parents quit lessons far more than their kids quit lessons. How important is it then in terms of this retention conversation and that relational angle, I'm, I'm throwing all this into the soup here and seeing what comes out. We have the relationships. We have the parents being the ones that are really the primary decision maker on where their dollars are spent and how long they stay in a studio and how committed they're going to be. How important is the teacher's relationship with the parent? Is it different at BMF than it, uh, do you take it a different way? Because I know you have a director of family communications. Do you put that primary burden on your family communications director or on the on the teacher? How does that work? Can you give me some insight into that?
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, and I wrote down some ideas here. So we have a community room at Brooklyn Music Factory. It's been mm-hmm. challenged over the last couple of years, but we do our damnedest to try to maintain a version of that. Um, and. That community room. One of the things we train our teachers to is how to communicate in five minutes or less at the end of each lesson with a parent. Hmm. We literally, like, what is one of my key roles at BMF? It's modeling how to communicate with parents in the community room. I'm not even. I won't even be teaching. I'm just. I'll spend a couple hours there, hanging out with parents, talking about this or that, or playing, writing a speed song with a student, etc. And um, so not only do you have to develop a relationship, your teachers have to develop a relationship with the student. And that relationship with the student is around helping guide them through the journey that your school promises. And keep in mind, this is when, when you say what's, what's, the, like, what's hidden underneath it all, keep in mind that the journey is not completing piano lessons. <laughs> right? It's not getting through all 12 levels of our songwriting party. It's transforming this human through the process of celebrating them through 12 songwriting parties. So you have to get very clear on how you're transforming this kid. It's so important that we understand this as founders, because I'm going to push on this time and again, time and again. You do not teach music lessons. You never have, you never will. You transform lives, period. And you use your music lessons as a vehicle for that. Your retention will go through the roof if the parents of your kids know that you're invested in their growth as a human. I I promise you that being able to do a circus act and play great piano is not enough right it doesn't matter if your kid if your students develop amazing piano technique and can play the heck out of some Rachmaninoff the parent who has mm. no idea even how a student or a human gets to that unless they're one of those few professional musician parents that we rarely have but we have them right the parent doesn't understand what's actually happening with their child as they're learning all of that but what they do understand is that their child is growing as a human and transforming in a way that you can describe, right? So Mm. it's just vital, vital, vital that we start with our teachers and we hammer home the idea of what your purpose is at your studio. Then we hammer home the idea that these music lessons or classes that you provide your students, that these teachers our teaching are about transforming the lives of those students. And then you hammer home the idea that the only way we ever have a chance of transformation is through developing deep relationships with our students. Mm. It's just sort of like, I mean, this might be like, yeah, everybody might be like, that sounds amazing, dude. But actually, I mean, I just had five people quit and I'm totally demoralized. I get it. However. You need to to sort of always go back up to 10,000 feet and be like, wait a minute, what is my purpose? Why does it work with me as a teacher? And how can I communicate that to my other teachers? What's so successful with me and my relationships with my students? And then make an effort to communicate that consistently with your other teachers and with your staff. Um, I'm gonna stop there, but I love your question, Daniel. So let's come back to it around the role that our director of family communications plays. Cause she actually plays a very different role than the one I was just describing. So maybe okay. we should go back to it, but I'm going to pause there because that was kind of a big, that was a big bite <laughs> to chew
1: on. <laughs> I don't necessarily have a question around that or, or a uh, little add on thought. I think it right. kind of speaks for itself. Maybe the best place to go is to see, to figure out, where the family communications director plays in the in this
0: yeah the uh, ecosystem
1: the, right this ecosystem is a perfect the ecosystem of how this all works out in your school because what I I'm just biting my tongue I've got a lot to say but I want to I want to okay. get to the depths of what BMF does and then I think there, there are some thoughts I want to inject into here that are not contradictory or opposition to what you're saying. I think they'll also complement it very, very well.
0: So um, sure. let's talk about the family communications director. So let's then let's, in order to do that, let's go back to our musician's journey reports. So we have writing parties. It's three days long. We pay all our teachers to show up to them, whether it's virtual or in person. And part of those musician's journey writing parties Part of our motivation is we just want to make sure all the teachers get them done, right? Because everybody's busy. If you just leave everyone on to their own devices, it doesn't work quite as well. we found. So it's better to have this big writing party. However, one of the other motivations for me is that I always deliver um, one or two little master classes as a founder on how to write a great musician's journey report. and then I always pepper it with our why and our purpose and sort of frame it for the teachers so that they can really compose um, from the why, instead of being just factual. Like, your student now can play the following major scales. Your student will ultimately be able to play three more major scales. Like, no parent knows what to do with that information. They need to understand that a major scale is going to help develop um, deeper melodic writing, which will then uh, improve, you'll see that appear in a new key when they move from D major to E flat major in the songwriting party next winter, you know, like, and so they're expanding their knowledge and flexing their musical brain, things like that. So we have a songwriting party. I mean, we have a songwriter's journey, um, uh, musician's journey report party. Now this the, the bringing in our family communications, our director there, every single one of those reports, she is CC'd on. So now all of a sudden she has, whatever it is, 300 emails in her box. Um, And what's amazing for her is that's the link to re-enrollment. So the teacher is talking about re-enrolling their students for the fall to be able to realize this vision. And all a family has to do is pay a $95 deposit and they get on the schedule for the fall. Um, that's it. Low commitment, really easy. We're just trying to, as everybody knows, if someone will commit with the credit card, that changes the game they're in, right? It doesn't matter the dollar amount, right? Mm. So next, Jessica's is now linked through those journey, musician's journey reports. And so then she, that's the baton handoff. Then she runs with it. And yes, she's got a mountain of work for her. Her busy season is May through the end of June. and it falls like a cliff in July 1st. So you are. It sounds a little bit like an accountant with tax season. (laughs) It's exactly like that, dude. And so she knows like she's ramping up right now for her busiest time of the year, which is re-enrollment. And then it's dead. And, you know, in July we, we go on vacation, we do different things, but it's super quiet for her in July. Meanwhile, our summer camp is bumping. So, that's the link to the director of family. And so there's two things that are so important there. Number one, we learned that the teachers can't be the sole person responsible for re-enrolling their flock of students. They just, they immediately think of themselves as a sales and marketing person, and they hate that. It's like having to put on a hat that where they just want to develop the student and their music, and their journey as a musician. They don't want to have to try to sell them on something, Right. So we uh, we learned over time, like, it doesn't really work for them. So number one, it passes off to Jessica, who's totally comfortable, and that's her role. She's, she enrolls all the students and schedules them. So, and number two, it gives Jessica a totally different view on this student that she doesn't otherwise have, right? Jessica's not a music teacher. She's not in the classroom. She hasn't watched that student, except for she sees them on the songwriting parties. So now all of a sudden she has this detailed report that she can reference if the parent has questions. So those are the two purposes. And that's, and that's how um, she gets LinkedIn. Uh-huh. Dude, I want to ping over to you, pivot a little bit, cause I'm really curious to get your perspective on it. Okay. You feel like it's time? Well, I actually had some questions
1: about, everything you've said up to this point because I feel like I've been putting together a map of the territory of what it how you think about it and we've done I think a really good job if I may say so myself of of really just letting you kind of put all the thoughts out there on the table Mm -hmm. so could I say back to you what I feel like I've heard you say for the last half hour or so
0: yeah fire fire what's what what do we do (laughs) <laughs> okay.
1: So for re, um, so I think we have the wrong R word. You don't think about retention. You think about relationships. And so what I feel like I hear you saying is this. One, you want to train your frontline teachers how to build relationships well with the students themselves. Not only that, you have both the teacher's and your family communications director in communication with the parent and giving them a vision for what their child's skill and music journey is going to look like. And then on top of that, you actually have a series of milestones built into your curriculum and into the fabric of the school itself that gives children these kind of, and parents both measurable points of progress, that it's not just an ongoing, oh, we're doing lessons there. And, and, but they're more substantial than just, oh, we passed another book. Um, I also feel like there's a fourth thing I felt like I heard you say that the actual, actually fourth and fifth, that the actual vision that you have for the school really plays a huge part in this in, in a way different than the vision for the child itself, that it kind of seeps into everything and that, there's a real richness to the story of the school, which plays into this. That's kind of an intangible. You can't really measure that. But then th- that vision plays into um, choices that are being made throughout the year. And even in how the school is set up, I think, you you know, a good example of that is your community room, that that's pressure. We talked about this in some of the first episodes we did, that that's precious real estate in one of the most expensive cities in the world to rent commercial space where you just have a space where people can commune where teachers and parents and kids and not you know non student kids can kind of hang out and there's a feel to everything and that relationships are being built naturally and a sixth point i might add is that all of this got created from a vision from what you thought was possible. You probably changed things along the way, but it wasn't created from a, a point of, hey, let me look at this nine tips for increasing my student retention PDF um, and and let me try to build something. Like it came from kind of a deep uh, belief and vision for what you felt the school should be, student results should be, that sort of thing. Okay, so here's my question for you. How closely did I nail it? What I get wrong, what I get right? I'm curious what your thoughts are as you hear
0: that said back to you. There's a couple things that you said that I want to highlight because they're really, really um, great. They're important reframing. I think you're, first of all, dude, I think your R word comment is perfect. We have the wrong word. It's not retention. It's relationships. How are we doing with our relationships? Um, the second thing I'll say is um, yes, yes, and yes. When we look at, our programs that we're building. Everybody listening here is building something, and they're building something that is that is coming from here. It is mm-hmm. absolutely coming from their heart. And um, I say this often, uh, and it's because I truly, truly believe it. Like if you were in it for the money, you'd be doing something else. If you were in it for ego, it, you wouldn't sustain. If you were in it for all these other reasons, other than a calling you have for a lack of a better term, um, you know, you wouldn't last. You wouldn't, you would definitely not be listening to a podcast on how to do it better. <laughs> you like you you wouldn't be spending your time researching and um, you know, being this curious. And so so, like, I'm looking at our musicians' journey reports, for example, and you you say this so well, Daniel, when you're like, Nate, you didn't just read a list of seven things you're supposed to do and then check that list and follow it. You developed a system based on, I mean, believe me, I read books. I've read plenty on retention. Um, but you developed a system that wor- was going to work within the community you were building. If I look at our Musician's journey reports, which is a template, it's just a Google Doc template. like it's not fancy. But the opening sentence is, here at Brooklyn Music Factory, it's important for us to see every student on their own journey to musical fluency. And we Mm -hmm. distinguish the next best steps on their path into the four categories above. And the categories are technique, which we call skills and drills, but technique, passion, that's this, like how passionate, how excited is your child and what's really exciting them Music theory, which to us is both the ear and the brain. So that's all of our big music games. Tons of gaming, gaming, gaming around ear training and music theory. And then finally, community. We literally measure whether or not we're developing their community. So we talk about how many other students they collaborated with. On a songwriting party, did they play with four other students or only one other student? Because if they only played with one other student, that's a little bit of a failure on our part. So we're striving to get them to collaborate with three other students next time, right? Um, So anyways, those are categories in the Musician's Journey Report. And it's not to say that people listening should just all of a sudden adopt those categories. It's to say that you should think, you should take a moment, and you should ask yourself, The following this is a great thought exercise that came up when I was listening to you recap, Daniel, which is take one single relationship that you've developed over a long period of time and ask yourself why it's working. So, pick a single student that you've been working with for I don't care how long three years, five years, seven years and just say, What has worked in your relationship with that student? How has that person been transformed over the seven years that you've worked with her right and yes you can ask well what has the curriculum that you've applied but also ask yourself what are the questions that she's brought up what are some of the pivot points what are some of the inflection points you've had in your relationship with her over seven years and then ask yourself how have you communicated all of those inflection points those challenges, those successes with the parents. Like, I just was reminded, dude, I was, I was, I brought up one of my students' musician journey report from 2020. So this is one of the beautiful things about this. As you write these reports year after year after year, you can look back and be like, huh, you know, talking to, we have open conversations with our students about what they what we envisioned for them three years ago versus what they're doing now. We'll literally pull up a musician journey report from years ago. And I'll talk about it with my 12 year old student. And I'll be like, when you were nine, this is what we imagined. What can we do now versus what we, what, you know, what, what have we achieved? What are we still working on? But like this students I'm, I'm bringing up, Nyo dude, talk about developing relationships. He's a huge basketball fan, massive. His mom's from Milwaukee. And of course, the Bucs just won it all. And so, like four weeks ago, mom texted me, and was like, Nate, let's go watch the Nets play the Bucs. So, that's what we're telling you. Say replace retention with relationships. Obviously, not all your teachers are taking people to basketball games. You know, that's not happening. However, it's, a, it's the little things that develop the relationships. It's sending videos, it's sending photos, it's texting in between lessons to be like, just checking in on Nio to see how he's doing with his songwriting with the new chords in A major. You know, it's those little things where people begin to develop trust that you're actually looking out for the well being of their child, right? This mm. goes beyond whether or not they can play piano, right? Mm. And in truth, Daniel, I mean, you talk about this all the time. You do such a good job with those that you coach, which is like, this is about transformation. And so we just need to reframe it. We need to say music lessons are about transformation, period. And relationships develop as um, we help one another in that journey, period. Like, that's how how we view it at BMF. Um, So, to keep it real, dude, I hammer this theme. I will hammer this theme at the all staff meeting next Friday. I will say Hmm. it over and over. I will literally say to the teaching staff, you do not teach music lessons, you change kids' lives. I'll say it like six times, and I've said it already like 600 times in the last three months. (laughs) You know? Um, Okay, I'm going to stop there. But I think you did a great job on recapping. And if we have time, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Slack channel we have that's just called Musician's Journey. And people mm. post responses from parents that they get after they, after they send out their reports. And it's just a way for teachers to celebrate one another. Okay, Daniel, so that's a whole lot about BMF. You did a great job recapping it. I think you hit it on the head when you said it's all about relationships rather than retention. Um, hopefully we learned a lot just about how BMF tries to develop retent- uh, Sorry, re- relationships. Um, but I think it's time to go to you now because I want to get your perspective on this. Um, can we can we pivot and get Daniel's perspective on retention? I think we can,
1: but here's what I'll suggest. Let's leave people on a cliffhanger and let's pick this back up in our next episode because we've already kind of gone in depth on this one and uh, we're stretching the bounds of, Uh, time, I think, and the patience that you might have. And honestly, I just want to give people time to reflect on this, because honestly, I think that where I'm going to take this, as I've been saying throughout the episode, it's not contrarian, it's not oppositional, it's the one-two punch. And I think what I'm going to talk about is is the natural follow-on to what you've been talking about. So let's pick up the next episode, Nate.
0: Okay, solid. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please... Share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.